The message today is Jesus' words, love your enemies. Really, Jesus? Actually, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Not only is this countercultural, this is also contrary to human nature. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't have enemies. No one's out to get me. But we're not just talking about Al-Qaeda or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This photo went viral this week of the Palestinian rockets, you can see them on the right, fired towards Israel and the Israeli anti-missile system, that's the long ones there, shooting them down on the left, the streaks of light. Those guys are enemies. But Jesus, unfortunately for us, is widening the pool of who fits the enemy category. He broadens it to anyone who has hurt us or hurt someone we love. And given the infection rate of human beings transmitting hurt to one another is 100% and has been ever since creation, we all have enemies. An enemy can be someone who mistreats you, slanders you, wrongs you, or in some other way hurts you or someone you love. And with our digitally connected world, that might be someone in the flesh, but it might also be someone you only know from news reports or your Twitter feed. Which means, when we think of an enemy, some of us might think of a family member who wounds us verbally or emotionally or even physically. Some of us might think of a team member at paid or unpaid work who undermines us or gossips against us. Some of us especially those of us who watched a lot of the trial, might think of Derek Chauvin, or anti-vaxxers, or mask mandators, or Republicans, or Democrats, or Trumpians. This past year, unfortunately, has seen the rise of many an enemy. So as we sit under this text today, and as we listen to what Jesus has to say about this, which face do you see? Who is the Holy Spirit inviting you to love right now, even though they don't deserve it and you feel completely inadequate to do it? It's that face I want you to have in mind as we hear Jesus out. We'll read the passage in its entirety in a few moments, but first, some of you may notice that even picturing that face right now makes your blood pressure rise or gives you a pit in your stomach or your muscles tense and tighten. That's because our bodies and brains have been given this amazing gift of a nervous system to help alert us to potential threats. Your body's physiological response in those ways may be its way of validating past pain. Feel free to take a few deep breaths right now if you need to. And I point this out because part of being able to obey Jesus' words here is identifying what we're experiencing in the first place so we can recognize our pain and then pausing long enough so we can respond more than just our pain. If we don't pause, we'll automatically respond with our sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight. Let me explain. You've probably heard that when we're threatened, our body responds in one of two ways, fight or flight. The fight mode is to retaliate. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. This is best illustrated by two toddlers on the playground. One hits the other, and the other immediately smacks the other on the back. 
Now, adults have much more sophisticated ways of retaliating. It may not be a punch, but it might be verbally sparring and jabbing at someone else's reputation over social media. It might be, no, Jesus, I won't pray for them. I want them to pay. Fight. Now, the flight mode is to flee, to withdraw, to run to safety. Avoid at all costs the perceived threat. This could be a partner saying he just wants a break in the relationship. Or it could be cutting people out of your life like removing a face from a photograph. I spoke to someone recently who was recounting a broken relationship she'd experienced, and I could hear the walled determination in her voice when she vowed to me, I don't ever want to see that person again. Flight. Jesus described a third response, not fight or flight, but right, his way, loving our enemies. And what's interesting about Jesus' way is that each of the fight or flight responses has an underlying need it's seeking to meet. And those needs are actually good. In fact, where we go off track in putting Jesus' words into action is when we try to love our enemies without allowing those deeper needs to be met. Before I explain, listen to Jesus' words in their full context from Luke 6, 27 to 35. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Someone takes your coke, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. If, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. I think this passage is one of the hardest to obey, and it's often misunderstood. So I want to spend several minutes here unpacking what is Jesus actually asking us to do. On the one hand, this message is pretty straightforward. Jesus is describing a way of responding to those who hurt us, not with fight, I'll hurt you for hurting me, nor with flight, closing ourselves off from relationship entirely. But it's also more than simply not seeking revenge. This is not just a call to not do. He's urging us to actively love others, to will their good. And he lists several ways of doing that. Love, do good, bless, pray for, give. The Greek word here, love, or agape, is a verb, not an emotion. It is willing the good of someone who has hurt us, regardless of what we feel, even though they don't deserve it. 
and Jesus' life right up until his final breath, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, was certainly marked by generous, self-giving love. On the other hand, when we look at the whole of Jesus' life, this picture of loving others is filled out a bit. Jesus isn't only known for turning cheeks and giving to all who ask. We have stories like in Mark 1, 35 to 38, where he does not give a crowd of desperate, needy people what they want, but slips away. We have stories like the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda in John 5, 6, where Jesus does not quite give freely. He asks for some skin in the game by the one being helped. Do you want to get well? And we have lots of stories of Jesus holding people to account for their actions. You brood of vipers is his address to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 35, 33 to 35. Even the incidents right before these words of Jesus show a Jesus determined to expose lies and veiled spirituality. Now let's be clear. I am not suggesting Jesus isn't following his own advice. I'm suggesting what many others have said of this passage. Jesus, as he sometimes does, is making a very important point by exaggeration. It's very important we take Jesus' words here seriously, but it's probably not helpful for us to take them literally, or at least not literally, in every situation, in every single moment. I don't know that kids need to take beatings on the playground without any response. I don't know that we should give money to every single person on the side of the road every time. So how can we reconcile Jesus' words here with the rest of his life? And here's where I want to return to the fight or flight response, because underlying each of these responses is a good desire that needs to be fulfilled, even as we live out Jesus' words to love our enemies. Let me explain. Underlying the fight response of wanting to make people pay for what they've done is a desire for justice, for accountability. We want consequences for actions. And by seeking accountability, we communicate that what happened is not okay. And we also, in so doing, often ensure the safety of others. Sometimes the church, out of a desire to preach grace, can communicate that holding people to account for seeking justice is wrong, that we should forgive and move on. But as always, we are to look to Jesus as our model and example. And yes, he was a person of grace, but we're also told in John 1, he was also a person of truth. Grace and truth together always. In fact, grace cannot be experienced unless we first acknowledge the truth. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's not saying, we can overlook that behavior. Give them grace. Jesus holds people to account. In fact, one could say Jesus often provokes conflict with religious leaders because they are hurting others with their rules and misguided attempts at spirituality. They're preying on the vulnerable. And if anything's going to trigger Jesus' anger, it's when you mess with the vulnerable. Matthew 18, 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and drown in the depths of the sea. 
Whatever Jesus means by loving enemies, doing good, blessing, praying for, and giving to those who mistreat us, he does not mean let them go free. He does not mean they aren't to experience the consequences of their behavior. Jesus was all about God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is one of justice as well as mercy. Loving those who hurt us doesn't mean they go unchecked. The day we heard the verdict for Derek Chauvin, I sat at my desk and wept, mostly from relief at guilty on all three charges. For what that meant for my black brothers and sisters, for what that meant for our city, and for what that meant for our nation. But I wasn't gleeful or celebratory. I don't wish Derek Chauvin's harm. I don't want him to die. I want him imprisoned so he doesn't continue to harm others. I want accountability so we can affirm along with our God that all life is a good and is worth preserving, black, white, officer, non-officer. Loving our enemies means we choose to will that person's good even as we allow them to experience the consequences of their behavior and choices. Just as the fight response has a positive underlying longing for justice, so too the flight response is a desire for safety. The flight response tells us, unsafe, unsafe, run away. And that can be a very healthy thing. Sometimes we do need to seek physical or psychological safety. Sometimes we do need to pause or step away or change the terms of the relationship or put boundaries around what the relationship looks like. Sadly, for many years, the church has implicitly communicated that people need to stay in abusive relationships because of texts like these. So I consider it pastoral malpractice not to be explicit about this. Jesus continually assumes honoring ourselves and caring for ourselves, Mark 12, 30 to 31, from which we derive our purpose statement, love God, love others, says in verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 31 here states, do to others as you would have them do to you. Paul says in Romans 12, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment, the implication being not too lowly either. Jesus' words here were not intended to force people to remain in unsafe situations. You can still choose the good, choose to will the good of another even from afar. Your ex-husband is not safe to be around and you need a restraining order? Get it. But you can still choose to pray for him, will his good, and use your words to bless, not curse, even if it's mediated through a third party. Seeking physical or psychological safety is healthy and we can still will the good of the other and guard our hearts so we have a posture of openness to amending the terms of the relationship should the person ever actually, legitimately, consistently change. So we've talked about the who and the what. What is Jesus asking to do? What about the how? How can we actually do this? I'm going to give it to you straight. We don't stand a chance without the Holy Spirit. Verse 36, be merciful as your father is merciful. It's God's nature to be this way. He doesn't have to work at it like we do. We need his help to do this. 
Knowing that in our remaining time, here are four ways of partnering with the Holy Spirit in willing the good of those who mistreat us. First, give your hurt and pain to God. This may seem self-evident, but it's amazing how often the church bypasses pain and hurt to hope and forgiveness. We will continue to act out our pain until we have worked it out in prayer. Have you read the Psalms? Or more accurately, have you prayed them? They're meant to be prayed, not read. Here's a free sample from Psalm 4, and I could have chosen many. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night, I, all night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. The psalmist is constantly acknowledging his pain before God because he knows only in giving it to God can it begin to be healed. Second, and this flows from the first, trust God to execute justice. As I hope I've made clear, the desire for justice is good. But if we want to love our enemies, we must leave that desire with God. We must recuse ourselves of that responsibility. We're not very good at it anyway, and God is. So giving it up doesn't mean justice won't happen. It just means we leave it to God to execute. Paul says this beautifully in Romans 12, 17 to 19. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't have to give up the desire for truth or justice or accountability or consequences. We just let God be the one to work that out. Third, after we've given to God the job of working out justice, we work towards our part. Now, in conflicts between human beings, our part might consist, probably does consist in some way, of asking for forgiveness. And it will likely also include extending Forgiveness to others. Jesus' model, prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is a good place to begin. But our part might also be exposing truth or lies. Our, our part might also be standing up for injustice. We just must seek to do this in a way that honors God. And here, I cannot stress enough that we need help in sorting out what our part is because life is messy, situations are complicated. Even in the last year, there have been great resources on this. If you want any book recommendations, contact me. But more importantly, please talk with a trusted friend or counselor who knows your exact situation, who can help you discern this. I often think about the sermon as the first word, not the last word. It's to stimulate you to... Think and talk with others, and I can't say that enough on, on this to know how this applies to your own life. Fourth and finally, choose one way to will the good of the one who has hurt you. If it's a minor offense and the safety issue is not pertinent, you could think of something you want done for you and do it for that person. If the situation does require some stipulations about how the relationship is navigated, I suggest start with prayer. I find prayer alone is hard enough. Ask God to help them, to heal them, to make them more into the person he wants them to be, but also to bless them richly in their pursuits. 
My experience is that you will find it easier to act in love towards another once you have been praying for them regularly. City Church, as members of Jesus' community, we are invited to respond differently to those who harm us, whether it's the small slights and snubs of everyday life or whether it's the weightier, more consequential wrongs. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We can do this while still satisfying those healthy longings for justice and safety. But it's not just that we can do this. We must do this. Not just because we're supposed to look like our master who, when they struck him on the cheek and ripped the coat and shirt off his back, he went right on loving and forgiving. But because this kind of behavior is what distinguishes us as his followers. This is the ID of a Christian. This is where we separate the men from the boys, the wheat from the chaff. And it struck me this week. If God's very nature is to love those who are not worthy of love, by definition, we cannot fully communicate his love unless we do so amidst great opposition and mistreatment, unless there is someone who's hurt us. Loving those who are easy doesn't really reveal who God is at his deepest level. So along with the challenge and hurt and pain and tears is an opportunity to reflect God more accurately. So if you've wondered recently, why don't more people know who God is and want to follow him? I want to encourage you to start by loving those around you who've mistreated you. That'll stop them in their tracks. That'll turn some heads. People watching the situation will be dumbfounded. And just maybe they too will become children of the Most High. Let's pray. It's a hard word today, God. It's a very hard word. Everything in us resists it. But we have come, as we've sung, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe it's true. We believe this is what changes the world. This is how you saved us, and this is how you intend to lift up Jesus and draw people to yourself. So help us. Help us know now by the gift of your precious spirit to discern truth, to see what is good and right underlying these desires, and to know how to step into them in ways that honor you for the sake of your name and your kingdom, though we know we will benefit too. Amen.